also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Welcome back to SockCast. I'm your host, Ed the Sock, and today our guests are Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz and music journalist Eve Bartlow, Barlow, and we will be talking about why it is absolutely necessary for Israel to vaporize children's hospitals in Gaza. Hi, Ed. Uh, it's, uh, it is great to be here uh, talking to such uh, a, a venerable and uh, important uh, jack-off garment. <laughs> I'm I'm very excited to finally be able to um uh, uh to assert that uh from time immemorial I have watched much music and enjoyed your insult comedy. <laughs> Thank you. you know, somebody somebody asked uh on on Twitter yesterday, my friend Andrew asked if uh Steven, the the guy behind Ed the Sock has ever busted in the sock. Wait, wait, wait. There's a guy but there's a guy just operating that sock? There's a man behind the sock, yeah. And the, and, the, and the question was... Ha- Thanks for ruining my childhood, Dan. <laughs> His question was a good one. Was has, has, has Steven ever busted inside the sock? And I would have to say yes. There's, there's about a 0% chance he hasn't. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, you're, 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 you're there. You're on tour with the, uh, much music. Uh, you're, you're, you're a camp follower for the Warped Tour 2003 at the height of your popularity. You know... Um, you're you you're you're about to go meet Smelly from AFI. And what are you gonna do? Not quickly whack off into the sock to get your rhythm below the belt? Come on. You are, of course, listening to the Bottleman, uh, with me, Dan, not at the sock, and Riley. And today we're joined by Jordan Kinder. Uh Jordan's doing his postdoc at McGill on extractive and post extractive imaginaries in the contemporary Canadian mediascape, and we are going to talk about oil and gas. How are you doing, Jordan? I'm doing great. It's a nice sunny day out in Montreal. I got um, woken up by what I like to call the Montreal alarm clock, which is four guys standing around a hole screaming at each other in French um, with uh, heavy machinery going on in the background. In my neighborhood, it's usually the street sweeper uh, that gets me. But ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You see, uh, with, with in my in my case, uh, it is the um, it is the, the the bobbies and the and the the ale the ale and pie sellers, the the little orphans selling matchsticks, and uh, and the hushed talk of Jack the Ripper <laughs> returned once again to terrorize the streets of East London. The cry of the suet monger. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The um. The, the the lovable chimney sweep singing his song uh, as I uh, go as I, I trundle to work through the traditional uh, stupid neighborhood of Brick Lane. A chorus of tubercular coughing. <laughs> That's right. A, a chorus of tubercular coughing as um as yet more ridiculous graffiti is put up around my house uh, in sort of a pale imitation of Banksy. Yes. So, uh, right. so we're, we're not here to talk about how we woke up. We're we're here to talk about um, the yeah the sock the sock yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we're, it's it's the sock cast the sock cast it's it's it, we're 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 talking about um we're talk we're talking about how there is a verified sock on Twitter uh, that likes to say there's like I don't know like repeat uh, APAC talking points and talk about how he's uh, he's a contrarian badass because Gen X is cool. 
I love to wade into a conversation, um, completely derail it, uh, claim to be super punk rock, and then my uh, end point is just basically exactly what mainstream media is saying. That's mm-hmm. that's punk, baby. I can't get maybe it's just because the fact that I haven't lived in Canada for 10 years, but no serious civilization would involve a commentator called Ed the Sock who says things like, this is actually a much more complicated issue than 280 characters could explain. What the fuck is with this goddamn country? We can never let things die here. If something if something exists and is briefly popular, it must it must continue on until uh, until the end, until the until <laughs> until the heat death of the universe, you know. That's right. It'll be uh, there will be a snock a a, a, so- a sock snarkily logic lording you uh as the sun flickers its last. That's right. Canada's great. And speaking of the sun flickering its last, um so today today we're going to talk about the uh the psychogeography of uh, oil and gas, the politics behind it, the parapolitics behind it. And I want to start with, um, if you'll let me, with two quotes, for, uh, one from H.P. Lovecraft and one from Reza Nagaristani. Um, and, and these came to mind while I was doing uh, research for this episode and Jordan reading some of your writing as well. Um, so here's the Lovecraft quote. The nethermost caverns are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Curse the ground where dead thoughts live, new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. For it is of an old rumor that the soul of the very devil hastes not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax craftily and vex it, and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes are secretly dug where the earth's pores ought to suffice, and things that have learned to walk, and things have learned to walk that ought to crawl. So that's the first one. And the second quote is from Reza Nagaristani's Cyclonopedia, which is a which is a great book. Uh, it's a kind of work of parafiction um, where oil is a uh, monstrous sort of great old one entity and this is the quote according to classical theory of fossil fuels petroleum was formed as a catonic entity under an imagine unimaginable pressure and heat in the absence of oxygen and between the strata in absolute isolation a typical edible case then a typical case of repression petroleum's hadian formation developed a satanic sentience through the politics of in-between which invariably wells up through a god complex deposited in the strata. Petroleum poisons capital with absolute madness, a planetary plague. Two cheery readings. That's, um, <laughs> that's right. And, and, and both of these, and kind of, Jordan, I'd be interested to sort of get your sort of initial thought on this. What both sort of writers have done is, I think, described quite accurately oil as a sort of um as as a sort of almost like metaphysical evil right i don't know how that strikes you yeah i mean in my research i look at uh the kind of cultural and political imagination of oil so for me that strikes me uh in in a strong way which is to to say that um i think that the character of oil in, in the imagination is uh kind of 
directly manipulated. Um, so while those two authors are sort of pointing to the kind of the dark side uh, of oil, the kind of stuff that I've been looking at, particularly uh, in the pro-oil movement, is, uh, you know, attempting to eschew that and uh, kind of manicure uh, a much cleaner image uh, of oil. So essentially what we're saying is that you you have been looking at the um, Innsmouth Daily Cultist newsletter <laughs> used to advertise the summoning of Clulu. <laughs> Effectively. You know, it's um, uh, what what a, what a great old one can do for your car payments. Exactly. Like one of our one of our first episodes, we had uh, we had our friend Aaron on to talk about Alberta and Alberta separatism, and and it came. We were talking about the proliferation of uh, I heart Alberta oil and gas uh, clothing, and you know, just that as a brand. And I think you know what we're talking about when we talk about that is an oil culture war um, where the struggle is over how we understand our relationship to oil, you know? Yeah. And in particularly the, that type of uh, iconography that you would have talked about comes from uh, a specific group called Canada action that was started uh, around 2013, maybe late 2013, early 2014 um, by a, a real estate agent in Calgary, uh, Cody Battersill. Oh, okay. And so this this iconography, I think, is kind of the most uh, prominent from what's kind of more generally referred to as the pro-oil movement, uh, but certainly really did a lot of legwork uh, in, in proliferating that, that uh, iconography um, across, you know, I, I lived in Alberta for, you know, something like five, almost six years doing my PhD. You know, you would see that on trucks. Uh, all over the place. Um, they also have a spot uh, in the Saddle Dome uh, where, the, where the Calgary Flames play uh, under the ice. Um, so the Flames uh, donated them that space. And, you know, I thought I'd dig in a little bit to see how much it actually would cost to, to rent that space uh, underneath ice, which is, I think, one of the most prominent spaces in hockey. Um, and it was something like a million dollars a year um, Probably more because the stats that I found were um, for the Bell Center here in Montreal from 2014. And so that's, you know, quite a while ago, I would assume that it could have even doubled uh, by, by this point. Um, so certainly this uh, sort of uh, a grassroots initiative, uh, as they're framed, is sort of deeply imbricated in, you know, uh, petro capital, uh, you know, hockey capital. <laughs> yeah. Hockey capital. The, the grassrootsness of it, I think, is, is sort of worth addressing now, right? Because one of the things that we sort of have talked about before is like these, these things, things that are made the object of culture war frequently originate from an elite fracturing, right? They are fr frequently the exhaust generated by squabbles between different kinds of, of elites, different kinds of capital specifically. And I mean, the... And, and and the fact that sort of most of these you might say trigger the libs types of um, culture war astroturfing groups, or even if not directly astroturfed, let's just say facilitated, because you know, how could one real estate agent's you know um, uh, best friends club uh, end up with this massive amount of um, advertising underneath the, uh, the the saddle dome rink? Well, maybe it's it's facilitated for him. So even if it's not like he gets a call from 
you know, from, uh, you know, either Jason Kenny or you know, John Petro Canada saying, hey, set up this group. Uh, it is still sort of astroturfed or facilitated or whatever. But I think it's no coincidence that sort of these these groups, um, uh, uh, the sort of uh, the Citizens United, uh, Americans for Prosperity and, and or even just like, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the ramping up of the Brexit campaigning over here. It's no surprise that all of these sort of emerged after 2008, all sort of emerged in roughly the same way, because what they all represent together is one side of a fractured elite, elite consensus that sort of goes back as far as the, you know, the 70s, 80s, when you have the, and I, I've talked, we think we've mentioned this but on the podcast before, but it bears repeating. I've certainly talked about it on, on Trash Feature before, which is this idea that there, there, the, the financialization of the economy created winners and losers, not just in workers, but in capital. And financial capital, which tends to be concentrated in cities, uh, tends to say vote Democrat or liberal or labor under Blair, but couldn't do it under Corbyn. Um, and and that tends to tends to have won out from from and from the seventies into the nineteen nineties into the early two thousands, um, and and tends to not and tends to be I would say financial, urban, global, whatever you want to call it, very polite as well, very elite, and. You know the um the other side of capital that had 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 lost or not had lost, but that had um let's say was um uh, put below the sort of what was now had itself subject to planning by sort of national or international capital was regional capital, extractive capital, factories, mines, uh, heartland elites, etc. And so it's like, like it's, dirty it's, capital, right? Like yeah, exactly. And so it's no surprise that and, and so the um. It's no surprise to me, right, that uh, we see a transformation, the, the grassroots organizing of these groups that are against all of these things that sort of make things run more smoothly for this, whatever, whatever internationalized, globalized system of, of, of exchange that the cities uh, so enjoy, or that the elites of the cities so enjoy. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that they come in the early 2000s when sort of a couple of years after that sort of hege- hegemony of the urban financial polite uh complicated university educated capital kind of was shaken by the financial crisis like these things i think are connected and rather than seeing culture wars as pointless uh i think and what what your your work especially on petro consciousness and oil culture war specific gets to the heart of how these sort of trying to sort of frame the petro imaginary Trying to sort of manu- the constant consent manufacturing, often by you know um, dirty capital for its own interests, is where you can say, well, no, the culture war itself is unimportant nonsense. Like it's basically like putting up a picture, a billboard of Trudeau, like being like, oh, we're gonna bukkake Trudeau with oil or whatever. <laughs> like that's dumb, but it's a manifestation of an elite fracture, basically. Yeah, and I will say one of the interesting things that's come out of this work is, uh, you know, at the start of it, uh, it was a very kind of polite intervention. Um, the origins of a lot of this I trace to Ezra Levant's Ethical Oil, uh, The Case for Canada's Oil Sands, which is really a, a book that's a response to the kind of very popular and effective campaigning by Greenpeace and others uh, to label uh, the oil sands as dirty oil. Um, this is sort of a direct response in this kind of uh, you know, a relatively uh, polite, balanced, uh, quote unquote, balanced discussion um, 
that it, that attempts to you know infuse Canadian oil with the kind of uh, principles of Canadian exceptionalism, you know, that were friendly, uh, that were ethical, that were uh, ecologically conscious. Um, but in the past few years, the particularly I would say post-Trump, um, you know, the ways that these groups have functioned is much more aggressively, uh, much more sort of tapped into that uh, alt-right imagination. They're, they're triggering the libs. Definitely, definitely. The, the, yeah. the memes that I've spent time looking at uh, are, are directly uh, using language from sort of alt-right movements uh, in that way. I, I mean, uh, the, the importation of sort of, of, of Americanness into the into this movement, even when it was Ezra Levant doing it as well, are sort of a, a borderline pathetic as well, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, one of the things I noticed right, about the, the sort of it because you sort of demarcate this into sort of two eras, right? The phase one is the uh, we are going to make the liberal argument for why uh, you know Canadian oil sands are better. That's um, that's and then, Levant's like yeah. transmutation yeah. of dirty capital. Uh, yeah. He's he's basically trying to make the argument that in his argument he's sublimating this dirty capital into something that's uh, moral because you're not buying Saudi yeah. or Iranian oil, but is also uh, absolutely necessary. There's no other alternative, and it's and it's good. Yeah, it's great. Uh, but that, 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 I mean, look. Also, I think right that, that number one, the concerns in eth- for ethical oil are basically what he says. Oh well, we can't be um, having, we can't be sort of uh, allowing there to be a market for Venezuelan or Saudi or um, uh, uh, Iranian oil or whatever. And it's like, well, why? Number so it was like, like say focusing on Venezuela and Iran, for example. It's like, okay, well, why? Well, it's because we can't. We can't allow there to be a market for uh, essentially targets of uh, U.S. foreign po- foreign policy belligerence. But if they're already targets of U.S. foreign policy belligerence, and our whole point is making um, is providing an alternative to those, why do they need us as an alternative? It's not like the U.S. was going to be <laughs> like engaging with those states that much. It's basically us saying. It's it's a it is a conservative attempt to say, hey, us too, us too. We're also in the empire. Uh, we also hate those guys. Look, we'll sell you them oil, so you don't have to buy it from them. And it's like they weren't. <laughs> they, they they weren't. Yeah, it's, quite, okay, uh, it's probably also worth pointing out. Uh, um, something like eighty-two percent of Canadian oil produced goes to the states. Uh, vis-a-vis certain trade agreements uh, that I think can't even be can't even be shirked in, in any sense. So as, as I sort of point out in, in my work, I see, I see the kind of um, the, the sort of impetus to build pipelines to Tidewater that have kind of occurred over the past decade or so as an attempt to get Canadian oil uh, outside of that kind of landlocked position into the global market uh, as it's sort of carrying this cultural narrative uh, of ethics behind it. Um, but even if even if this this oil could get to tidewater, I'm not even sure uh, I'm not sure it's possible to be sold on the world market in the same way based on those trade agreements with the U.S. that are very binding. So the the resource the resource nationalism that comes along with a lot of this kind of these discursive interventions is entirely misplaced when you do any any little bit of digging. Well, it's the what it what it suggests right is that it's. The 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 effective level really 
is just all it's almost like um it, it, the, the, on the on an effective level this is essentially just aligning oil with cultural signifiers that are anti-liberal anti-pointy-headed professor etc right where it's like we're, we're uh, this will materially change nothing but we're br- we are changing oil into something that you know um infuriates the urban barista who's enjoying a moment of smugness at your expense because you know you live in red deer right it's it's that it it is it it is re it's recontextualizing this you know, satanic liquid from the ground as something that is just it's something that you can say well my main thing because politics has essentially been by that you know elite fracture i mentioned earlier right the the is that you know the that if if politics is the distinction between friend and enemy um you know i mean in sort of a, a permanent schmidtian state of exception after 2008 um if and and if the and if if it took a few years and i think this is like the if you want to look at the transition from um let's say the ethical oil narrative to a uh, black rifle petro company uh, <laughs> narrative um then but what that is is that is the um is is the shaking of that of the hegemony goes from it, it eventually ends up with a leader emerging in the form of Trump, to be honest, um, and then the battle lines being drawn. And but you know you you're still uh, impotent. You're still a uh, sort of alienated suburban like IT consultant, and you drive a <laughs> you drive a pickup truck that says you know fuck your feelings, but you still mostly just drive it to the pharmacy to buy Crestor so you don't die. Right, like it's um, and so essentially, just you don't really care about where this oil is actually going. If we said that, if the you know trigger the libs case became we're gonna buy oil from Saudi Arabia, then you'd say fuck yeah, this runs on nothing but pure Saudi crude, baby. Like it all just gets it. it everything becomes in serve. Everything that is sort of experienced, you know, is just in this in this spectacle. Right, and it it is. I think what we're talking about here is the transformation of oil from you know the uh, the blood of the devil that sort of consumes humanity and the planet and its dark grasp into just another uh, cultural signifier in the spectacle that says you're on the you know Confederate flag side, basically. That's sort of how I. But in the in the work that I read of yours, Jordan, that's kind of how how I would sum it up in a sentence, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a great summary. I also think it's worth kind of pointing out that one of the things that the, these groups reveal is the kind of uh, the the fossil fuel basis of a lot of these kind of like uh, right wing political movements, uh, etc. So it's not just that oil is kind of an empty signifier uh, to be kind of manipulated in these ways, but it's kind of a driver of modernity in a, in a certain sense uh, that that because of that, uh, you know, carries so much cultural capital with it that can be manipulated uh, in these terms. Mm. Yeah, so I think one of the things that you talk about, right, and, and I think we've been sort of alluding to this quite a bit, but I think it's, it's a sort of a central concept in your writing, and it's worth exploring a little more in specifics, which is this concept of petroturfing, right? We've, we've talked a lot about petroturfing, but let's define it as an idea. Sure. Um, so petroturfing is a reference uh, and sort of riff off of the concept of astroturfing that your listeners may or may not uh, be familiar with um, that you did uh, bring up earlier 
Um, I sort of play with that term to more specifically uh, identify um, the pro-oil movement in Canada and its use of social media, and particularly the kind of uh, you know performance of grassroots uh, uh, performance of grassroots identity uh, as a means to circulate what I'm perceiving as already dominant kind of cultural narratives around oil, mm-hmm. uh, as if they were a sort of marginal, edgy uh, positioning. Right, mm-hmm. right. You were you're a revolutionary if you were uh, if you were mm-hmm. slapping the bumper sticker that triggers your neighbors on your uh, yeah. giant pickup. Well, I think it's 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 sort of interpretable, right? In terms of like um, uh, watching, I don't know, like say, I don't know, like our 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 RBC presents cops at Pride, and just your reaction to that, which it it is basically just it's it's where it's it's two people sort of um. It's it's getting mad at that, you know. But it's getting mad. It's getting mad at that while supporting everything that RBC Investment Bank might profit from, basically, right? You know, it's being like, ah, oh, I remember when police were police. Get him off. Get the get his marchers off the streets, and then being, I'm I'm a rebel anyway. Time to time to go protest for oil, <laughs> right? It's the it's the same. It is ju- it is just um. It, it is sort of working yourself through a uh, a, a set of like cu- of infuriating cultural bugbears to just end up, you know, um, supporting everything the you know Globe and Mail editorial board more or less wants, and also you know everything that enriches the uh, enriches the coffers of the sort of wealthiest and most powerful. Yeah, it's a it's a manufactured subculture that kind of enlists you in in the uh, in in the digital army that is that is working towards this goal that is maybe a completely apolo- uh, apolitical goal. There's a goal in the service of capital. I think that's the most kind of effective, uh, effective strategy at its core, which is to convince, uh, you know, an audience, uh, particularly a social media based audience that, um, you know, environmentalism, uh, you know, Indigenous peoples uh, fighting pipelines for their own self-determination, etc., are a sort of branch of the uh, liberal elite um, that don't have the best interests of the working class in mind. Um, and that, that, that strategy is actually extremely effective. Uh, and in, in the time that I've been, been sort of watching these groups, that transition from the kind of earlier ethical oil, uh, you know, uh, ideology into a kind of more aggressive on the ground uh, movement um, has demonstrated that that's actually a pretty effective um, strategy, and and the the slippage that occurs uh, that is particularly interesting to me is that it aligns the interests of a working class uh, oil sands laborers with their CEOs and shareholders more than it does you know a broader population that they actually have a shared interest with. Um, yeah, yeah. I I actually saw the some of the beginnings of that um, living in couch and like like uh, British Columbia, watching the sort of demise of BCFP, and then uh, that being replaced with you know private uh, private logging companies like Warehouser, McMillan, Bloedel, and it wasn't. I mean, the 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 technique wasn't quite as advanced, but there was this sort of boss worker solidarity false solidarity emerged that did not exist before um i'd say before there was your basic you know you have guys who are in unions 
they're not antagonistic towards their bosses, but they're not, you know, they are not going out of their way to support them. And that, um, that was kind of erased. And this seems to be a much more effective, effective, uh, insidious version of that. Well, I mean, if, if it, one of the general, one of the general points of like sort of modern far right movements of different kinds is that they aim is that they aim to shore up elite power by mo by mobilizing one section of the working class by privileging it slightly over the other ones right by 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 responding to how beaten down everyone is to keep most of them beaten down by appointing 5% of them as your sort of chosen enforcers which in or it, as your allies basically which in itself is just a mirror of the british ap approach to colonization <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean that's that is that is the class that is the classic uh uh fa that is the point of what fascism is in terms of its mass mobilization uh, in its mass mobilization character. It is it it is the sort of it is the mobilization of the working class against itself essentially. And so you know it it is no surprise to me that like in the case of Canada which as we've said before is three mining companies in a trench coat um that you know that that the act that the action of kind of create of again the fake anti politics of creating sort of working class affect around something that is essentially of benefit only to regional elites who might you know also share a love of some of the same iconography is having is again is it is towards a similar end it is it is essentially the same thing. Uh, it is it is this it is a similar process. It is the privileging of a a slice of the working class as more important and therefore more worthy of protection. So you know, screw everyone who's going to get harmed by global warming. We got to make sure that these particular oil jobs don't just stay, but they don't even change, right? So that's resistance. That's why resistance and obfuscation, as well, to something like the Green New Deal, which is like, you know, imperfect though it was, was like, um, sort of aimed to put like you know like organized aim to like use like labor organizing to like um to get the energy workers working on things that were not carbon intensive but by saying no actually it's a working class it is a working class um uh, uh culture to um burn hydrocarbons basically you don't want any of this namby pamby you know bourgeois latte sipping pink hair decadent solar panels do you you know it is it is no coincidence to me that sort of this is it is it is the same sort of track it's the same strategy it's the same game plan just with sort of different stakes in a different place at a different time but the shape of it is similar but i i want to almost like um go go sort of go back to our timeline that you established earlier jordan which is we have sort of moment one sort of in the early 2010s before the sort of leader of this sort of new right emerged in the form of trump um we had the ethical oil thing and i want to do a little bit Get into a little bit of the specifics here, um, and this was was Ezra Levant, and uh, so he published this. He says he's making the moral argument against buying uh, sort of Saudi or Iranian oil. Two countries that are uh, aligned, very much in an axis against Canada and the United States, yeah. against Saudi Arabia, Iran, Nigeria, <laughs> Venezuela, Venezuela, best friends can't stop working together. Um, and again, like like we said earlier, it's like well, Canada doesn't. You don't need to encourage Canada to sort of go move in foreign policy lockstep with the U.S. No, like, we're already there, baby. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Levant wrote um, 
the question is not whether we should use oil sands oil instead of some perfect fantasy fuel that hasn't been invented yet. Until that miracle fuel is invented, the question is whether we should use oil from the oil sands or oil from other places in the world that pump it. It's a fact of life. If Americans don't fill up their cars with Canadian gasoline, their gas is going to come from another oil-producing country. So this is what he wrote right in 2010. Yeah, and the, the fact of life reference, I think, is one of the, uh, one of the aspects to hone in on there, which is, um, in, in my work, one of, the, one of the characteristics I draw attention to in this discourse is the foreclosure of thinking through any potential uh, other ways uh, of existing and living in the world beyond consuming fossil fuels. Uh, he sort of sets up a paragraph there that really naturalizes this process as if it's the only uh, you know, way we exist now and it, the only way we'll exist in the future uh, in a really deeply ahistorical manner. Um, it's, similar to, it's similar to the sort of neoliberal line that um, this political system we have in North America, flawed as it may be, is the only one we got. You know, like, like, like you see well, that rhetoric repeated over and over again. I feel like it's a it's a mirror to what Levant is saying. Well, I mean, it, it sort of is as well, because both of them say, look, buddy, uh, you wouldn't be posting from that iPhone and driving your Prius if it wasn't for, you know, Reaganomics or Thatcher or oil. You know, these these decisions that were made in the 1970s and 1980s, these are the thing. These specifically are what you have to thank for. You know, whatever your life, whatever your life is now. If it wasn't for this, you know, we'd all be you know living off of you know food scraps and um, you know driving Mad Max uh, cars around, right? Like it wouldn't it wouldn't be your your life wouldn't be what it is. And so the implication is that in or if you move beyond any of these things if you stop using oil if you sort of try to get out of neoliberalism as whatever you want to define it um there the the unspoken alternative is penury misery and drudgery right it is that your life it's it's that there is an alternative which is no society at all effectively no modernity we're going back to you know feudalism basically if not for oil and neoliberalism with the sort of hilarious uh, reality that if we continue to do this in the way that we are, we will be living uh, in that Mad Max scenario. <laughs> and, and, and the funny thing is, right, the point is never the point. I think the important thing to remember, it goes back to sort of what is the point of culture war is that the point for someone like Ezra Levant is and in fact, all of the work he does at Rebel really is never to sort of make any kind of case. It is rather to make a case that must that demands that it be answered, you know. And so then you can never stop using oil because you have to debate whether or not it's right or wrong to use oil for fifteen years, and then that's fifteen years of oil company profits. This is, uh, I think, a classic sort of right wing debate tactic of sorts that that uh, you know it almost sets the conditions of the debate in a way that allows for no other uh, sort of mode of discussion. Uh, and in this particular setting is uh, egregious considering, as you pointed out, uh, it sort of just further uh, entrenches, uh, you know, the fossil fuel economy uh, in our everyday life uh, to to the detriment of the planet. Yeah. And this this debate also um, creates a sort of false sense of um, participatory democracy, which, you know, you kind of outlined, Jordan, in some of your work on 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 how these groups mobilize and activate just citizens 
but yeah, it creates this uh, this false sense of of pushing the needle when really you're mm -hmm. you're just kind of wasting time. And and the conventional news media is also uh, in part to blame for I think serving a legitimating function uh, for these groups. If you look at you know places like CBC uh, at this point now, when you discuss uh, you know let's say um, Wet'suwet'en resistance to coastal gas link you now have to include the kind of pro-pipeline argument as if this is uh, on equal terms and we're just sort of having a friendly debate about, uh, you know, encroaching on unceded Indigenous territory. I mean, it, and, it to, and in that case, right, what one of the things that happened is I think like, you know, for, I mean, it, whether whether you want to say that the, the corporate media was essentially like just basically bamboozled by a concern that it might like, that it might alienate a bunch of um a bunch of people who actually like had no real opinion about it but then once it started pandering to them gave them that opinion that they hate right that they basically fell into a trap of their own making or whether they're just sort of gleefully um uh, sort of you know gleefully sort of propagandizing a pipeline i mean i think that really almost makes no difference right you know it's it's almost the case like like it's like blind stupid optimism and cynicism are completely indistinguishable from one another you know at, at some point when they are felt by someone with any kind of power you know it, and and the idea that they are i think it's and and the thing and they're at this point i think they're sort of stuck i don't think that they're the cbc is ever going to be able to get out of the idea that it has to like always have have like an oil company in Groucho glasses on to make the case for its continued existence. Well, they're always going to give equal time to like, I don't know, uh, <laughs> someone in Red Deer who's standing outside a auto dealership talking about United We Roll, you know, they're going <laughs> to because because they're they're terrified of those people defunding them. Mm hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, and you know, I mean, and and the irony, of course, is that without the CBC sort of taking all of the, without them, without a lot of these sort of mainstream outlets taking a lot of this stuff seriously in the first place, they don't. They're that the um the consensus in that population that they need to be defunded, that they are the enemy and stuff, that probably never would have emerged, or at least not as strongly. So they are they have made for themselves a prison and they're all too, all too happy to do so because it keeps because it keeps generating heat and airtime and the oil companies are fine with that because they then nothing happens um, and, and petro consciousness is unchallenged. That's 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 the point to emphasize, I think, is that the, the deadlock or what's perceived as a deadlock between those who uh, want to continue uh, carry on with the fossil fuel economy and those against it. Uh, the deadlock ends up benefiting existing power relations of, of inequity, right? This is actually beneficial for oil and gas companies for us to be locked in this debate. Uh, in my work, I, you know, I call it the oil culture wars. And one of the points that I'm making, I'm still writing, I'm writing the book, but uh, one of the points I'm making is that we need to kind of exit the trenches of the oil culture wars because this deadlock is just benefiting uh, extractive capital at the end of the day. Because it's not deadlock, it's victory for extractive it capital. The, the, for the further into the future that these companies can exist, the better. And this deadlock produces those conditions at a, at a kind of instrumental conjuncture for various reasons, one of them uh, accelerating global climate change. Yeah. And, and so we, in historically, right, we had like the ethical oil 
media web, right, of people of people sort of selling this story. And that web kind of transforms into like a more we again, we go from you know uh, Citizens United to Black Rifle Coffee Company if we want to make an American allegory, which we often do because Canada is not a real place. Um, um, so and and you talk about and you you sort of make this point in in your writing. You say if the first wave represented the deployment of the rhetoric of balance of appealing to reason discourse to counter the alleged stronghold and extremism of environmentalism. The second wave marks a more aggressive mobilization of those already sympathetic to the oil and gas industry. So let's talk a little bit about that second wave. Yeah, I think one of the, uh, I would say, figureheads or instrumental groups in this second wave uh, is a Facebook-based, but they have a larger web presence group called Oil Sand Strong. They're the one that has the kind of white white fist, clenched fist fist logo. um, That Are they part... Are they part of that whole network of Ontario strong, BC strong? Like, I, I feel like that's that separate, but it's mobilizing the same uh, in the in the middle of I would say in you know the middle of the past decade around 2015 or so that that strong discourse uh, emerged not necessarily initially through a kind of right wing politics, but certainly was quickly uh, mobilized in that way, um, and now mm-hmm. is sort of you know. Every time I see that word in a in a logo or in uh, you know any writing, I'm immediately alerted to the potential that these are you know alt right uh, you know proto or straight up fascists. Um, anyway, long story short, this group run by a Fort McMurray, I believe he's in marketing uh, resident um, Robbie Picard, is is much more aggressive. That's kind of doing that what what in the states they often kind of call is mobilizing the base. Right uh, around Trump, it, it's it's certainly mirroring that uh, around fossil fuels and using the same kind of keywords, uh, these kinds of emphases on free speech uh, and and the kind of culture wars uh, language. That's much more different than the rhetoric of balance that's put forward by Levant. It's very funny that this is all just pr- so much projection. Like, like, who are the ringleaders of these groups? It's like some Ayn Rand dork, Alex Epstein. Yeah, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> This guy that like is just like a marketing executive, a real estate, a real estate agent. agent. These are yeah. all massive fucking pussies. <laughs> like these are all nerds, uh, and they're just and it is it is the it is he's so clearly like these guys just dreaming about a world where they're taken seriously by the people who they're claiming to stand up for. But they're just they are they are the latte sipping professionals or whatever who they claim to decry. <laughs> This is the thing. It's a it's a very important point to put pressure on. Is um, I I don't know if you're familiar with Bernard the Roughneck. This is a this is a character from from the pro oil movement. Uh, I'm not. I'm not either. I, I'd lo- I'd love to hear more about Bernard. Who is Bernard the well, Roughneck? More of these Bern- more of these Bernie Roughnecks are coming in and uh, harassing liberals online. Bernard, Bernard the Roughneck got his start. Uh, being interviewed by Rebel Media. And so for those listeners who uh, are unfamiliar with Rebel Media, this is a kind of alt-right news ecosystem in Canada that is essentially the same as uh, Breitbart, uh, ran, interestingly enough, by Ezra Levant of Ethical Oil fame, uh, who we talked about earlier. Um, In an interview, he was counter-protesting a protest that was happening in Vancouver 
uh, against the Trans Mountain expansion, and and a rebel media reporter interviews this, uh, I think, solo counter protester who uh, introduces himself as Bernard and is given the title uh, Bernard the Roughneck. And in this interview, he just sort of rehashes some of these key points of the ethical oil argument uh, and other sort of pro-oil movements. Um, very soft-spoken, long hair, wearing a baseball cap, sort of like looking like an average oil sands worker uh, in general. And so they really sort of mobilized this imagery. The video went as viral as these kinds of Canadian um, Canadian politics uh things can go. And he uh, essentially became a character. The, the contractors, uh, I forget the acronym, uh, the Canadian Oil Well and Drillers and Contractors Association. Mm-hmm. Sponsored- it's the Association of Trailer Park, Trailer Park Supervisors and Assistant Trailer Park Supervisors. Yeah, I know it. Uh, they, they sponsored him to deliver a petition to Trudeau that was asking for um, sort of more support for oil and gas industry workers. Um, what's interesting about this whole process is he gave a, a, a speech. You can see it covered on CBC. I think if you Google it, uh, the first kind of coverage is CBC. And there's a video of him speaking where he starts by saying, uh, you know, I'm not a guy in a suit from Calgary. I'm an average roughneck. And behind him uh is a guy in a suit from Calgary uh, who got him to go there and do that. So in particular, the CEO of this uh, association called Mark Schultz, who has a long kind of history in uh, right-wing politics in Alberta for such a young guy. I think he's actually about my age. Um, Anyway, he's the CEO of this organization who sponsored and actually formally put in this petition uh, through the portal, uh, the parliament portal. So his name is attached to this position, petition, sorry. Um, so yeah, long story short, it was a petition created by a guy in a suit from Calgary, uh, <laughs> delivered with this sort of impassioned uh, speech. Uh, and the final point is, I'll, I'll make is that Bernard the Roughneck, who ended up gaining quite a bit of kind of cultural clout in this uh, sort of right-wing oil-fueled circle, uh, was working for oil and gas companies, but he also has a bachelor's degree in media and communications from Bishop's University and, you know, was in the active in theater there. So you can't even really make this stuff up. It's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous scenario that points to this uh, affiliation with oil executives from the working class that we spoke about earlier. I mean, also the fact is, right, when he went to deliver the petition in parliament, he was, he, he put oil on his face. Like, he literally streaked his face with oil. But, like, did he just walk off the job and just keep going until he got to Parliament? Or did he bring some oil with him that he could put on his face before addressing? Yeah, I think he walked there from Grand Prairie. Yeah. Part of the dark incantation, you know? Like, if you're... If you're summoning the, if you're doing the biddings of the old ones, uh, you have to you have to wear their garb, right? You have to you have to you have to rub the blood on your face. Yeah, you have to you you have to if you, to appease the great old ones, you have to put on you have to daub yourself with the uh, holy oils. In this case, oil, 
Uh, you also have to wear the sacred garments, in this case, uh, a high-vis that you just pack in your carry-on luggage because you're just wearing sweatpants to and from there. Uh, and then you basically uh, cast a spell on all of the gormless politicians in, in Ottawa who immediately fall for it. And just no one sees through this obvious piece of absolutely moronic theater. That's right. Yeah. I mean, become a celebrity. The the association with Parliament is worth pointing out as well in relation to uh, the origins of this whole movement with Ezra Levant, who got, you know, he got a spot in Parliament in the Standing Committee of Natural Resources to pitch his book, essentially, right when it came out. And so there's, while there's this sort of uh, framework of grassroots mobilization, there's also this deep imbrication with, as we pointed out, you know, capital, extractive capital but also the political sphere, um, you know, immediately being able to launch your book in parliament speaks to a position and relationship that you have uh, with existing uh, uh, government uh, um, politicians, right? Yeah, which is ironic considering the ideology you're, you're, you're selling is, uh, is a kind of almost libertarian one, like pro-working class libertarian anti-government policy. They seem to have almost formed a kind of deep state, right? Where like there they they there are now sort of almost oil company intelligence and security forces of these like you know like marketing executives and dorks who uh, travel around the country to like report on protests or work in Jason Kenny's social media war room to you know post like oil goaded AF on TikTok, right? Yeah, the deep state question. Um, so I know this term deep state has a kind of uh, rocky history in that I think it's often used by um, the alt-right now, um, but did have kind of origins to just describe kind of the more machinations of uh, sort of the political apparatus. Um, those who are interested, I think, in um, the way that oil sort of has uh, penetrated or constructed a deep state, there's uh, you know a book I recommend written by Kevin Taft called Oil's Deep State. That's a nice kind of history of, of, uh, of the imbrication of oil within out, particularly Albertan politics, but it says a lot about um, you know, the, the fossil fuel bases of Canadian politics. Mm-hmm. Well, because like it, it, it is through the Oil Deep State that like Ezra Levant is able to pitch his book in Parliament. It's through the Oil Deep State that like a lot of these a lot that a lot of these uh, companies exist it's through the oil deep state that like some you know real estate agent is able to get a um a, the position at center ice in the saddle dome it is essentially this network of sort of uh, of of elected politicians oil money and these like you know um uh like i, I don't know uh, oakley glasses uh fry core um, like the Crestor Fry Corps, uh, who are essentially able to work together to essentially kind of make a mockery of the democratic process with regards to you know energy and the the oil imaginary is sort of a, a core part of the thing that unites these three together because Kenny knows that he needs to keep Alberta the Alberta conservative movement generally must protect the oil because that's where they get the money and um, and and the money is then used to basically frame oil as an essential part of Albertan life and an essential sort of part of working class Canadian life that the, um, you know, those frou-frou liberals from the cities are trying to take away from you. Um, and 
and and and then you know the you know the Crestor Frycor are able to feel as though they are you know daring and dangerous and part of a and ha- they have that exciting life as part of a meaningful political movement. But it's actually just drained of everything. It is anti-politics because it is just the it is just the furtherance of removing the of removing this stuff from the earth and then giving it to the states so that you know um, so that similar guys can like you know roll coal on you know um, pro-choice protesters or whatever. It's all just this. It's all just the, the. It's a closed loop, and I think you know the the term deep state because so much of it is sort of anti-democratic, beyond democratic politics, or somewhere uh, somewhere obscured. Right, you know, we say parapolitics; these things that are outside of civics class. Let's say politics by other means. Yes, and and have physical manifestations in the real world now. Indeed, and you know, I mean, I, you talk specifically even about. Um, I said that the this that they're 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 troops. They're you know marketing executives who like to either go and you know pantomime in front of. Um, uh, 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 parliament or you know like spy on protests elsewhere again you you write uh you write um you they that uh, um, there was a demonstration against the prospectors and developers association of canada convention um and a group called rally for resources explained that they attended in order to witness one of these radical demonstrations with their own eyes gather intel on the anti-extraction movement in canada and report back the experience to their followers uh, which they did through a blog post, um, and that uh, uh, they 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 essentially do the the same. They do the classic fascist stuff of portraying the, their enemies as both laughable but terrifying, um, and and so I'm suggesting they are an enemy within. Blah blah blah, um, and but that they say it is a meticulously organized charade by obviously paid professional protesters whose militant tactics disrupt and convenient inconvenience everyday innocent Canadians. Um, and that essentially, right, they are, it, 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 there, there, there's a parallel here as well, I think, right, between, um, groups that sort of, the dark money trigger the libs groups, let's say, in America, having those, ma- having their manifestations of their politics in the real world, say, through, like, going and, you know, collecting intel on, which is a, a war activity, essentially, against anti-extraction protesters. Right there is we can you can see the trajectory they're on even if the trajectory is shallow and will take a while right yeah and I I mean I I started uh, that piece of writing with that that account because I was at that demonstration and it wasn't you know I've been to I've been to many more demonstrations that could actually be uh, you know characterized as violent or frightening of some sort but this was not the case. Uh, this is a it's a protest that happens every year around this conference that happens in Toronto, uh, and it happens in Toronto as you pointed out in uh, your episode uh, on Canada being you know three mining companies in a trench coat, uh, you know one of the major purveyors of uh, extractivism in the world. Something like sixty percent of all existing mining operations are based out of the TSX. And so every year this conference happens and every year there's a protest against it and it takes over the street. It's not violent, uh, but this group uh, certainly has, you know, has an interest in portraying it as such and portraying it as against uh, Canadians, um, this kind of nationalistic enterprise. 
And I mean the and it goes I think it goes back to this it it goes back to if you if you look at this trajectory right there is when we give up on you know sort of just delaying tactics right when we have when you have the the political battle lines drawn such that like there is a definable enemy within that must be combated by you know the oil deep state um then like how long before you know the I mean, I say how long before. I mean, it's already it's already happening with like First Nations protesters being targeted by these groups, right? Yeah, yeah. And so one of the interesting things uh, that comes out of that is uh, indigenous protesters being targeted by these groups uh, very explicitly using kind of racist and often misogynistic tropes to represent them, uh, particularly um, you know tropes related to getting getting a job uh, and and these sorts of these sorts of tropes that have a long history in kind of Canadian settler colonialism. Um, but on the other hand, this is occurring while like the literal police state is surveying these protesters and categorizing them as criminal. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of working in conjunction in a very interesting way. So it, I guess it must be rebellious to support the RCMP uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we love our cops, our law enforcement. You know, like on, on a previous episode we did with the, uh, author Jeff Vandermeer, um, we, were, we were talking about oil as uh, one of Timothy Morton's hyper objects, um, these sort of things you cannot sort of trace the edges of. And, and I was thinking of this quote uh, from hyper objects that Morton wrote, modernity is the story of how oil got into everything. And in your piece, this recent piece you wrote for Environmental Media Lab, you, you write about the mystification of oil and uh, and there's an infographic from Cap that you use, which is uh, from Cap's Contacts magazine, which is um, an N95 respirator mask as an object that would be impossible to make without petroleum. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit of, about whether that's a mutation of uh, this sort of propaganda or or just oil as a hyper object in general. Yeah, I think to me it's in my read of that is that it's in the best interest of uh, fossil fuel companies to sell us uh, on the fact that we can't live uh, without oil, um, which uh, as far as I'm concerned, isn't true. And it can't be true. Um, We've existed without oil before uh, and we will have to exist without oil at some point in the future. Uh, I think the Morton quote gets to this kind of core of oil underwriting modernity and thus making it such a powerful signifier to be, sort of manipulated in a public sphere, uh, both for and against, right? So one of the things that I delineate in that article that I shared is this, uh, is, is that the dirty oil framing is also participating in this process of cultural signification that, that produces the kind of deadlock uh, that we're in w- between dirty and ethical oil. Um, to, to riff a bit on, on Morton's hyperobjects, I think, um, you know, a very, a very effective concept to grasp the kind of limitlessness of a certain uh, relation or object that exists within society. So I think, I think he even cites climate change as being uh, an, uh, a hyper object itself as something that's very, very difficult to comprehend. Um, but I, I always like to push back a tiny bit to, to the hyper objects thesis, which is to say uh, there's a positioning that occurs uh, where something that is a hyper object isn't a hyper object anymore. Um, I think 
I think it's hard to, to sell the hyperobject thesis to people who uh, live near pipelines that have spilled, who live near tailings, ponds, et cetera, the kind of byproducts of extractive capitalism. Um, so it's effective in comprehending, uh, it's comp- in comprehending the kind of abstract character that powerful commodities play in our day-to-day life, but I think might also kind of override uh, some very important kind of political points to make about living near extractive sites uh, and dealing with their consequences. Yeah. The material consequences of being close to that. I always, I always think of the question of, of visibility in pipelines is kind of my, my kind of go-to. Pipelines could probably be a hyper object to some degree too. Um, I'm not sure if Morton directly cites them, um, but often there's this presumption that a pipeline is invisible and that's kind of, or in general, even infrastructure is invisible and that's kind of one of the ways that it functions. But um, you know, pipelines are visible if you know what to look for. There's clear cutting, uh, et cetera, and they become visible when they fail also. So those are kind of, there's always a kind of dialectic happening there. I think that's worth uh, drawing attention to. And I mean, the other thing to remember, right, is that pipe is that to a lot of these like tar sand strong people, especially the people in, at the head of these like fake political movements, the pipelines are also imaginary to them. They live in a suburb. They live in a suburb and they drive to and from work. They do not see or experience the pipelines. Like they are, they are, it is as imaginary to them as it is as imaginary to someone who is elsewhere and thinks it shouldn't be happening. It is this, and it, I think the point is, and sort of as a way of wrapping, as a way of sort of wrapping us, wrapping us up a little bit, the point is to understand like that, that these, these things aren't imaginary, that they are real. And that the and the very idea that you should you know consider you know Bernard the roughneck the sort of actor who streaked himself with soot to go bamboozle the Liberal Party very easily the idea that these people should be taken seriously given an inch um, or listened to or even communicated with in any way other than uh, scorn mockery and derision is itself allowing uh, you know a victory for the oil companies you know this is. The only the, the oil culture war, like most like most war, exists to perpetuate itself, and the and the only way to escape it is you know to create a new imaginary, to not take it seriously, to enmesh yourself in the physicality of how it is actually experienced by the people who experience it, not just pipelines, but climate change and pollution. I mean. You know, there's um, people who die of air pollution, for example, as well. There was a, a sort of a, a girl in, in, in London where I live, uh, uh, and she, she, was, she died some years ago, and recently it was found by the government that her death was directly attributable to air pollution, which is huge. Like, the, the finding of that fact, right? But to, to rematerialize it is, I think, the job of sort of progressive politics, whatever you want to call it, when it comes to oil in Canada. It's to not let it continue to be this abstract thing that can be sort of, you know, used to sort of je- to make, you know, marketing consultants from Calgary feel good about themselves. I mean, the end of the deadlock is a Nagaristani-style planetary plague in the form of I Heart Canadian Oil and Gas t-shirts stretching from one horizon to the other. <laughs> Please no. That's right. Um, all right. Um, sorry. Uh, producer note here. Please don't leave this in. Um, all right. I think that 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 I think that takes us to a pretty good place. I think uh, wraps it up nicely with a little bow. I just want to say, uh, Jordan, do you want to make any any any? 
I mean, you have the last word because you're the guest. Would you like a last word? No. Okay. Okay. Cool. cool. Perfect. Perfect. I'll. I'll uh, Dan, you want to? You want to? You want to take us out? I will take us out. Jordan, thank you for uh, thank you for coming here and 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 walking us through this. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to Sockcast with Ed the Sock. Um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, did, next week we're uh, we're talking to uh, that Ben Menashe guy. Uh, he's he's going to tell us all about. He's going to finally tell us all about politics. Of course, uh, it is the Bottleman. This was the Bottleman. Um, you can uh, go to Patreon.com if you want to hear more of uh, of our whimsical japery and uh, deep dives into how Canada is fake. Five bucks a month, baby. Yes. That's right. It's seven bucks a month, actually. I seven bucks find. a Canadian, month, Canadian, which is about five American. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The price has gone up because uh, we we moved away from oil, and now there's hyperinflation. We're actually record we're we're recording these podcasts on lumber. We're etching it into lumber, and the price of lumber is skyrocketing. So um, <laughs> that's right. Seven. Cool. All right. Later, everyone. Later, everybody. Later, everybody.